Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week, and I'd like to say a few things about a new book that I'll be publishing this week. In fact, I'll be on a national online book tour, speaking around the country about my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. But let's first of all jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. Well, the past week has seen a tremendous controversy concerning the origin of the coronavirus. Now, you may have thought that last year wasn't it all settled Perhaps it was nothing but a fluke. Perhaps we just got it from an animal that then had its virus hopping over to humanity. Well, the crisis is now brewing because of the fact that the World Health Organization came out with a report about the origin of the coronavirus that many scientists have shaken their heads about. For example, the former head of the CDC. The Center for Disease Control, Dr. Robert Redfield, publicly, publicly stated on CNN that he suspects the virus escaped from a laboratory in China, and now we have scores of other scientists beginning to say that the WHO report simply does not have the rigor we need to settle the question of whether or not the coronavirus was designed. By scientists in China, so we'll analyze the evidence one way or the other, and also we'll say a few things about the exploration of outer space. You know, SpaceX has been very pioneering in terms of being able to cut through a lot of bureaucratic red tape, launch rocket after rocket, successful launch after successful launch, but now four shots in a row. On national television, SpaceX crowning achievement—that is, the Starship rocket—blew up four times, blew up four times in front of millions of well-wishers. And the question is: Is this a setback for SpaceX? Is this going to tarnish the reputation of Elon Musk? Or, hey, is it just part of a learning curve that is normal for any advanced technology? And then we'll say a few things about what's coming out of the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland. It turns out that over the last 50 years, we physicists have established what is called the standard model of subatomic particles. We have a zoo, a zoo of subatomic particles that we can more or less arrange into a regular pattern called the standard model: leptons, quarks. Pi mesons, protons, neutrons—all sorts of subatomic particles can fit into the standard model. But scientists are not satisfied. It's one of the ugliest theories ever proposed in the history of science. Thirty-six quarks and antiquarks, twenty free parameters, three redundant identical generation of particles. It goes on and on and on. And now, big news. Just a few weeks ago, scientists have announced that they might have seen the first deviation from the standard model in the past 50 years. Why is that important? Because the standard model is the theory of almost everything. 
It does not include gravity, but it includes all the quantum particles that we see every time we smash apart protons. And so it signals the fact that there is a higher theory out there, a theory beyond the standard model, a theory which will perhaps unify these hundreds of subatomic particles into something more beautiful than this ugly theory called the standard model. You know, even the physicists who worked on the standard model, hundreds of them, realize that it is as ugly as sin. It's hard to believe that Mother Nature, at the most fundamental level, could create a theory that is so unwieldy, so clumsy. It's like taking, for example, an aardvark, a platypus, and a whale, scotch taping them together, and declaring that to be nature's finest evolutionary achievement. The greatest, most streamlined, sleek, elegant animal ever created by the forces of evolution. Well, we physicists believe that there is a higher theory out there, and that's profiled in my latest book. My latest book is called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. It starts 2,000 years ago with the work of Pythagoras, the famous geometer who discovered the Pythagorean theorem of triangles. He was watching a lyre string one day and noticed that the longer the lyre string, the lower the frequency of the note. And then he went to a blacksmith shop, and whenever they were beating a bar of iron, the longer the iron, the lower the frequency. And then he took out a sheet of paper and wrote down the mathematics. Yes, he reduced music to the mathematics of harmonies. And he was so elated that he could then categorize millions of different kinds of musical notes that he declared that this is the paradigm of the universe. The rich diversity of what we see around us is nothing but manifestations of vibrating strings. Well, that great idea never went anywhere because, well, the Roman Empire fell apart and for a thousand years, science was plunged into darkness and witchcraft and sorcery and it's only been in the last hundred years that we're beginning to assemble pieces of the theory of everything. In fact, Einstein spent the last 30 years of his life chasing after an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God. Now, how does that work? First of all, today, we know that all of biology can be explained using the language of chemistry. Chemistry, in turn, can be explained using the language of physics. Physics, in turn, can be explained by two theories. One is relativity, the theory of the Big Bang, the theory of black holes. And the other theory is the theory of the very small, the quantum theory, which makes possible lasers, transistors, the Internet, modern electronics. The problem is, it's like having a left hand, relativity, and a right hand, the quantum theory, that don't talk to each other, that don't coordinate with each other. It's hard to believe that the, the God of creation would have a left hand and a right hand that don't coordinate. And that's the unified field theory, the God equation. An equation perhaps no more than one inch long that would unify relativity and the quantum theory. Now, think of E equals mc squared. That equation is only half an inch long. 
And yet that simple equation unlocked the secret of the stars. It's the reason why the stars twinkle. That's why we have sunshine. That's why we have life on the earth. Because M of hydrogen in a star turns into E, energy of sunlight. And so we have a simplicity emerging here. And the destiny of humans, I think, is to solve this simplicity. You know, I like to think that the universe has given us a challenge, that we are living in a chess game. And after 2,000 years, scientists have been able to slowly piece together how the pawns move, how the bishops move, and how the knights move. And one day, we will find out all the rules of chess and become grandmasters. Well, that is the God equation, the theory of everything. And what is this theory? It is a theory of music. It's a theory of vibrating strings. So in other words, if we had a super microscope, we could see that an electron is not a dot at all. It's really a tiny vibrating string. So small, it looks like a dot. But it can change frequencies. And when it changes frequencies, it's a different note. And we call it a different name. So the electron turns into a neutrino. The neutrino turns into a quark. The quark turns into a meson. And so all the subatomic particles are nothing but musical notes on a string. As J. Robert Oppenheimer once said, father of the atomic bomb, he was horrified that so many particles were being discovered every year in our physics laboratory. He said, quote, the Nobel Prize in physics should go to the physicist who does not discover a new particle this year. So how does it all work? Well, as Pythagoras theorized 2,000 years ago, the paradigm is music. Each note on a vibrating string corresponds to a different subatomic particle. That's why we have electrons, neutrinos, and quarks, and Yang-Mills particles. What is physics? Physics are the harmonies that you can write down on these vibrating strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play on these vibrating strings. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. And then what is the mind of God? The mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That is the mind of God. Well, if you want to find out more about this, then go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U, or my Facebook site. We have four and a half million people on Facebook. I've written four New York Times bestsellers, and my latest book is The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. The greatest quest in the history of science is to find this equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will summarize all the laws of the universe into a coherent whole. This has been the dream, the dream for the past 2,000 years. And we think we have it. We think it's called string theory, very controversial. Nobel Prize winners have split on the question of string theory. But find out what all the controversy is about by going to my website, mkaku.org, mkaku.org. And perhaps you may want to listen to one of the book tour lectures that I'll be giving in the next two weeks. Well, anyway, let's jump right into the top science stories of the past week. 
The lead story in science today is, where did the coronavirus come from anyway? We thought that was settled last year, right? Perhaps it was nothing but the accidental jumping of a virus from an animal, like a horseshoe bat, to a pangolin, to a human. Well, not so fast. A special committee was set up by the World Health Organization to go to China, ask the Chinese scientists, and they were not happy. Not happy because Chinese scientists stonewalled, stonewalled some of the basic understanding of what happened in the early days of the epidemic and what kind of research was being done in Wuhan, China anyway. Well, let me try to summarize the reservations of these scientists. First of all, the evidence against China is circumstantial. There's no smoking gun. No one has been able to prove that, aha, the Chinese deliberately manufactured this virus in their laboratory. But let's analyze the circumstantial evidence. Evidence number one, Wuhan, where the virus did come from, is a special city. It's not an ordinary city at all. By coincidence, perhaps, they have two centers for biotechnology that investigate the possibility of using germs in warfare. These are top secret biological laboratories located right where the virus originated from. What's the connection? The answer is, we don't really know. Some Chinese bureaucrat or scientists may know, but they're not telling. Second circumstantial coincidence, what do they do there? What do they do at these two top secret biological warfare institutes? Well, among other things, they study bats. That's right, they study bats. Some of these bats actually containing a version of the coronavirus. The question is, were they playing with the coronavirus or just harmlessly playing with coronaviruses that naturally infect bats? Circumstantial evidence number three. Bats do not naturally emerge from Wuhan. They were brought in from the outside, from Yan'an. In Yan'an, we find caves, caves where bats thrive, and that's where they think many of the bats came from. These bats were shipped from Yan'an to Wuhan. And so, again, a third circumstantial piece of evidence linking these laboratories to the outbreak of the virus. But let me be very clear about this. This is not the smoking gun. Now, on the opposite point of view, the majority of scientists who look at the question say that most likely the virus emerged naturally from the environment. Now, how do they back that up? They look at the DNA and RNA. When you start to look at the genetic evidence the genes behind these viruses, you find that if they were engineered, engineered by some malevolent force, then they would tinker with an ordinary virus and simply modify it a bit, exploring different avenues. But it turns out that the coronavirus, which jumped out from Hunan, is quite different, quite different. And a normal scientist, using his or her techniques, in order to create a virulent virus, would not probably have gone in that direction. So the mutations are original. 
they're not the kind of mutations you would expect from someone who is then cloning a virus and trying to weaponize it. It doesn't look like a weaponized virus. Well, unfortunately, the Chinese, of course, could settle the whole question the next day by revealing exactly what was and what wasn't done during those fateful days last year. Unfortunately, the Chinese are tight-lipped. They're not saying anything about this. And so that, of course, feeds more suspicions, more suspicions about whether or not the virus was engineered or not. Well, the question is, was it really engineered? The answer is, I don't know. However, the scientists at the World Health Organization don't know either because of the stonewalling of the Chinese government. Well, let's move on because some people are saying that perhaps we've turned the corner on the virus. Well, not so fast. The question is, how close are we to herd immunity? Herd immunity is the point where so many people have either been infected with the virus and recovered or got vaccinated that the virus has almost no more fertile territory to grow and prosper by infecting more humans. In that situation, the virus has a few choices, quote-unquote. One, it could simply disappear and die. The other one is it could mutate. It could mutate so that it does not necessarily kill humans, but it could still propagate by infecting humans. That's called herd immunity. And we think that the 1918 flu virus, which killed more people than all of World War I, that the 1918 flu virus basically is still here, but it mutated because it could not survive if it simply kills off everybody. It mutated to become the flu, the seasonal flu. Well, that's a theory anyway. But right now, how close are we? Well, it, we have to reach about 70%. No one knows for sure. But about 70% of the population to achieve herd immunity. Where are we now? Well, 20% of the U.S. population have now gotten both doses of the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. So in other words, we have a long ways to go. And we simply don't know the number of people that have been infected, but simply recovered. So in other words, we don't know. Well, let's move on because SpaceX is making the news. SpaceX is the darling of people who love the space program. It pioneered the Falcon Heavy rocket. It's been able to launch payloads right up to the International Space Station, including U.S. astronauts for the first time ever since President Barack Obama canceled the old space program and ushered in an era of private enterprise slash public funding. But let's be real about this. You can't hit a thousand all the time. Four of its Starship rockets blew up on national television. It is a setback. Of course, SpaceX spokespeople tried to put the best spin on it, saying that, well, we got good data from these explosions. But the last explosion blew up the data as well. So that's something that's pretty hard to cover up. So there's a lot of backlash now against SpaceX and Elon Musk. You know, my attitude is give the guy a break. He's already made history. When the history of space travel is written, he's going to get a whole chapter. 
he initiated so many innovations and, and so much new blood and new ideas to the space program. Reusable rockets, that's something he pioneered. People have talked about it for a long time, but no one had the guts to create rockets that can be reusable. Well, here we are with reusable rockets. He claimed that he could reduce the cost, and he has, perhaps by a factor of five. That has opened up outer space to even tourists because the price tag was always the thing that stymied uh, the effort to go into outer space. And he's also injected a new vision for the space program. The old space program had a vision, beat the Russians, beat the Russians. Well, we did, and we got tired. We lost interest, and it cost too much. And so the manned space program basically fell apart. Well, here comes SpaceX with a new vision to become part of a multi-species civilization. Who would have thought that a billionaire, the second richest man in the world, would create a new vision for the space program? And he's now been joined by the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. He has his uh, horse that he's backing. It's called New Horizons. And he too wants to go into outer space, back to the moon, and on to Mars. So my attitude is, give the guy a break. I mean, he's had so many successes, I think he's earned the right to have four flops. Also, as I mentioned, new news from the Large Hadron Collider. It has verified what is called the standard model, but now, for the first time in history, just two weeks ago, it was announced that they may, just may have found and deviation from the standard model. The muon and the electron are identical, except the muon is a particle that is heavier than an electron. But now we find that the physics, the physics of muons, the mass, for example, compared to the electron is different. And this sig signals the fact that there could be a higher theory out there. And as I mentioned at the first part of this program, that theory, might just be string theory. Who knows for sure? Of course, any deviation to a theory that is so established has to be checked and rechecked. As Carl Sagan once said, remarkable claims require remarkable proof. But the hoping is that this could be the clue that points the way to a new era in particle physics and the quantum theory. And who knows? Maybe string theory will come out the winner. Also, let me say a few things about stem cell technology and osteoporosis. It turns out that one in three women eventually come down with a form of osteoporosis, a loss of bone, for example. One in five men also suffer from this. And stem cells may one day give us the solution to the problem. However, Let's be clear about this. Even though stem cells in principle can regenerate to reform any other cell of the body, even though we may one day be able to grow human organs to order using stem cells, there's a lot of hokum, a lot of fakes out there as well. If you, if you see an advertisement that you think is a little bit dubious from scientists who are not really accredited, and they claim to use stem cell technology, cutting in technology to grow human cells. Well, be careful. Buyer be wise. 
There are a lot of fakes out there and fakes that claim to use stem cells to regenerate organs. You know, we're not there yet. However, a new breakthrough was made at the University of Southampton in England. Scientists have used nanotechnology to create a program that is up to 500 times more efficient in terms of harvesting stem cells. So what's the basic problem? The basic problem is that stem cells are hard to locate and they are hard to grow in the laboratory. And we need to do that in order to create artificial bone and skin and organs of the body to create a human body shop. Well, the scientists at the University of Southampton use nanotechnology. They created tiny gold spheres, microscopic gold spheres. So small, you can barely see it. You need a microscope to see these gold spheres. Second, they coated it with special DNA so that it would seek out, seek out the DNA of bone. Then also, they coated it with a special dye so that when the cold spheres reached a stem cell, it would release this dye, which contains fluorescent material. So it basically glows in the dark. So here's how it works. You inject the person with these special gold spheres that are coated with special DNA so they seek out stem cells and they're coated with a special dye so that when they reach the stem cell, it releases a dye so it becomes visible so you can then separate out the stem cells from the ordinary cells. This is amazing. It is up to 500 times more efficient in terms of locating and harvesting stem cells than other techniques. Now just realize that, for example, in the United States alone, bone fractures cost $20 billion to heal. $20 billion to treat bone fractures. And then look at osteoporosis. Osteoporosis affects, as I said, one in three women and one in five men, and it affects them in the waning days of their life when they need strong bones. They need to be healthy to exercise, to get out there. But osteoporosis affects so many people. People take calcium supplements, but you know, the body also excretes calcium as well. And so calcium supplements have not proven to be the cure for osteoporosis. In fact, is there really a cure? The answer is no. So why not use nanotechnology to grow bones from your own stem cells? And that's where the promise is. The promise is that maybe stem cell technology will actually become a viable technology not the stuff of fakes and charlatans, but a real therapy that will allow us to grow human organs, to create a human body shop. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we talk about 
one of the strangest things in the entire universe, black holes. So we're going to bring on Dr. Fulvia Melia, one of the world's experts on black holes, to talk about, well, what happens when Einstein's theory begins to break down, what lies on the other side of a black hole. Stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration with Professor Michio Kaku. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we talked about my latest book. It's coming out this week. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. In other words, for the past 2,000 years, some of the greatest minds of history have tried to grapple with, is there a theme? Is there a paradigm? Is there a way in which to understand the vast diversity of matter and life in the universe? Well, find out. The book is The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. And today, in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about black holes. Now, when children learn about black holes, they often ask the question, Mommy, Daddy, if all that stuff goes into a black hole, where does it wind up? Well, is there another side to a black hole? Is there a white hole at the other end of a black hole? Unfortunately, Einstein's equations talk about black holes, but they don't say anything about what happens at the center of a black hole. That's so frustrating. Einstein's equations are great, but they break down at two very important points. One is they break down at the instant of creation. So it says nothing about what happened before the Big Bang. And it also says nothing about what lies beyond the center of a black hole. Is there another universe, a gateway, a wormhole on the other side of a black hole? Well, that's why we need a theory of everything, a theory which combines the quantum theory with relativity. You see, at the atomic level, Einstein's theory makes no sense whatsoever. But, of course, we live in an atomic world. So, obviously, we have to combine gravity with the other quantum forces, and that's what my book is all about. The God Equation, the quest for the theory of everything, is about trying to unify all the laws of nature into a single equation, perhaps no more than one inch long. You know, all of biology can be re-expressed in the language of chemistry. All of chemistry can be expressed in the language of physics. All of physics can be expressed in terms of relativity, the theory of the very big, and the quantum theory, the theory of the very small. But we want one theory, not two, one theory which combines everything into a fabric 
that explains everything we see around us. Well, the leading candidate is called string theory, which believes that music, music is this missing paradigm that eluded philosophers and scientists for the past 2,000 years. The music of the universe gives us all the subatomic particles we see in nature, and physics in turn becomes the harmonies you can write on these vibrating strings. Chemistry is the melodies you can play on these strings. The universe is a symphony of strings. And then the mind of God that Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after would be cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. Well, once again, with us today is Dr. Fulvia Melia, one of the world's leading authorities of black holes at the University of Arizona. And the book, as I mentioned, the book, The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything, is also being used by public radio stations as a fundraiser. That's right. We're going to be giving copies away of The God Equation to help raise money for public radio. Okay, well, without any further ado, our special guest today is Dr. Fulvia Melia, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Arizona, one of the world's leading authorities on black holes. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in physics and astronomy? Well, I actually grew up in Melbourne, and uh, I, I don't know if all of your listeners have had the opportunity of visiting the Southern Hemisphere, but looking up at the sky from the Southern Hemisphere, one gets a, uh, quite a different view than, than from the Northern Hemisphere. The Milky Way, for example, is very easily seen, and it stretches from one horizon to the next, and it, it fills the cosmic vault. And when I was small, I remember almost every evening just going outdoors and, and just looking at the stars and the Milky Way for hours and hours and hours. And I would say that that's probably what started me off. Uh, with that, of course, comes the natural curiosity of how things work and what these objects are. And one is led, I think, in most cases, to uh, a study of physics. And, and that's what got me into physics and astronomy, I would say. And Arizona is one of the world's leading centers for astronomical research, I understand. So what is it like to be in Arizona versus being in New York City to be able to look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way and also to be at the very forefront of telescope technology? Well, that's the interesting comparison, of course, because even though um, I, I usually tell my friends, especially the ones overseas, even though we belong to the same country, the southwest of the United States, is really very, very different from the Northeast, as I think everybody uh, realizes. Here in Arizona, the skies are almost always clear. Um, it's not a coincidence that many of the national and now the international telescope facilities are being built here. Uh, we get very little cloud cover during the year, so going out in the evenings, whether using a telescope or not, um, it presents quite a glorious experience. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, to feel the, uh, the magnitude um, of the skies and, and the objects uh, there. And, of course, for research, especially for the observers and people who build instruments eventually placed on the telescopes with which these observations are made, there's, there's very, there are very few places on the planet better than this to do um, studies such as this. The clarity of the skies and also the... Uh, access to objects not only in the Northern Hemisphere, but those approaching 
um, what one would see from the southern hemisphere. Of course, Earth's rim prevents us from seeing all of the portion of the Milky Way that would be accessible from the south, but nonetheless, during um, a portion of the year, we can still see the center of the galaxy, for example, which is close to the southern horizon for us here in Arizona. But uh, other than the skies here, um, the only other place that would present a comparable opportunity for studying um, these objects would be from countries such as Chile, um, which of course is way down south. Um, so as far as we here in the United States are concerned, unless we want to travel to South America, this is probably the place to do this type of work. And also, tell us a little bit about how stars die and uh, the formation of black holes. Right. Well, this, of course, is um, uh, an ongoing investigation. We think we understand some pieces of the puzzle. Not everything is known. It, it's quite a long story. Uh, uh, black holes can actually form in several ways, and it's not clear that the supermassive objects that we see in the nuclei of galaxies form uh, through the stellar process of, of life and then uh, death. Uh, they may have formed in other ways, and we may come back to this in a few moments when we talk about the, uh, the genesis of these objects early on after the Big Bang. But in terms of the smaller black holes, like the ones, uh, like Cygnus X1, for example, these ob the objects that we think weigh perhaps uh, 10 to 20 times as much as the sun, as far as these objects are concerned, most of them um, are produced uh, when a very massive star, and by very massive we mean something, uh, an object that weighs anywhere between 30 to 50 times the mass of the sun, uh, burns its nuclear fuel rather quickly, it turns out, because the more massive the object is, the faster uh, it burns the fuel, um, and then eventually loses that internal support that prevents it from collapsing to the middle. It's the heat generated from nuclear burning that uh, preserves the star during its the main part of its life, like the sun is now. And at the end, when that nuclear fuel is, is burned to heavier elements, such as carbon and eventually to iron, um, the heat generation stops and the material can't support itself anymore and collapses into the middle, at which point um, a supernova explosion ensues and the remnant, depending on how massive the original star was, can sometimes be a black hole with a mass somewhere between a couple of uh, solar masses and 10 to 20, as I said earlier. So the vast majority of black holes about which we know um, and there are some billion of these in the galaxy probably formed in this way. But there is another class of objects, like the one at the center of our galaxy and the center of many other galaxies, such as the Andromeda galaxy, our sister galaxy. These objects um, have a mass anywhere between a million to several billion times the mass of the sun. And although some of them may have started as seeds from supernova explosions, uh, a long, long time ago and eventually have grown to the point where they are now, it's not clear that all of them could have formed that way. And the reason I say that, and this would lead into a, another part of the story, um, the reason I say that is that we now have very, very strong evidence that at least some of these supermassive objects were formed only 700 million years after the Big Bang. 
much, much earlier than the formation of galaxies and much of the structure that we see in the universe today. So it's starting to look like there was some other mechanism, some other process that led to this early collapse and this, this catastrophic creation of, of uh, very strong gravity surrounding these, um, these objects, um, which probably also then acted as uh, nucleation sites that attracted other matter towards them. And that matter, uh, we think, in, in many cases, may have led to the formation of galaxies. So the odd thing now is that uh, we may actually owe our existence to the formation of these supermassive black holes because they may have been um, the seed that created galaxies, which then, of course, created stars within them and planets and life and so on. So it's quite a long, complex story, and, and we don't know all the, uh, the details yet, but some of the pieces of the puzzle are starting to emerge in that there, there definitely appear to be several classes of these, and one class having to do with the supermassive objects uh, somehow had a genesis much, much earlier than we thought before, and how they formed is not entirely clear yet. Well, I have a question that many young people ask about black holes. Uh, first of all, black holes suck in everything. Even light itself cannot escape. In some sense, they're the ultimate Roach Hotel, and the Hubble Space Telescope has photographed the black holes eating up whole star systems. So in other words, things check into a black hole, but nothing ever checks out. Well, then the question is, well, a black hole should be invisible. Even light itself cannot escape from a black hole. Therefore, a black hole should be invisible. And yet we have the Hubble Space Telescope taking photographs of perhaps hundreds of black holes in outer space. And so then the question is, how do you photograph something that is invisible? Right. This is, um, th this is what's really generating much of the excitement these days with um, uh, theoretical astrophysicists and, of course, the physics community in general. Um, what telescopes that have been built up, up to this point have seen so far is not really the black hole itself, but what they see is light produced by matter falling into the black hole. Um, their resolution is not yet um, good enough for them to make an image of the black hole itself, the event horizon, which is the surface uh, beyond which nothing can escape, including light. So if we really could see the black hole itself, what we would see is a, is a dark shadow um, in front of a curtain of light. The curtain of light presumably would be produced by matter behind the black hole relative to us, and uh, the black hole would absorb all of the light produced behind it um, or redirect it away from our line of sight because gravity can, can uh, bend the path of light, and so we would see a dark shadow. That's what a black hole would look like if we had a camera uh, with such clarity, such spatial resolution that we could see detail down to that size. It does look like by the, the end of the decade we may have the capability of actually forming such an image. But for now, um, telescopes such as Hubble and Chandra have not been able to do that yet. So instead what they show us is images uh, or what they produce is images of matter falling into the black hole from uh, larger distances, distances much further away than the event horizon itself. Um, both have, have done spectacularly in this regard, though. Uh, both Chandra, uh, the X-ray telescope, 
and uh, and Hubble have uh, each produced a very deep image of certain patches of the sky. Um, uh, by deep, we mean that uh, there were patches in the sky, such as one in the constellation of Ursa Major, where there are very, very few objects um, within our own galaxy inside of that patch. And so it's like looking through... Um, uh, it's like looking through a relatively open window to much, much distances much further away than uh, objects within our galaxy. And what they were able to do by staring at these patches was to collect light from objects um, some 10 to 12 billion light years away. In other words, objects that uh, were producing this light um, only seven to eight, nine hundred million years after the Big Bang. And what they see when they look at these patches is um, very bright objects, either X-ray objects or uh, ultraviolet or uh, infrared objects in the case of Hubble, um, uh, objects that number as many as 500 within a region only the size of the full moon. So if you can imagine with your eye looking at a part of the sky uh, that has the size of the full moon, Within such a region, these telescopes have, have been able to produce images of as many as 500 of these objects. And these objects are so far away, they're so bright, that the only way that they could produce this much light uh, is if they're black holes absorbing matter from their environment and converting gravitational and rest mass energy into, into light. So we believe that when we look at these patches, most of the objects that we see, most of the 500, um, must be supermassive black holes um, at that uh, distance in, in the universe. And what's interesting is that when one extrapolates over the whole sky, these numbers correspond to total numbers of some three to 400 million such objects. And uh, we know that that's not all that's there because that's what we can count. That's what we can see. But some of these objects are probably also obscured by uh, dusty matter falling in towards them, and so it's not clear that we're seeing everything. So the best that we can say is that there must be at least 300 million of these supermassive black holes um, spread throughout the cosmos. Chandra, of course, has gone on and done even much better than that. Uh, it's allowed us to look at the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy with even better clarity because it's much closer than the others. Um, it's only 25,000 light years away compared to the 12 billion light years of many of these other objects near uh, the beginning of, of the universe's life. And um, because this object at the center of our galaxy is so close, we've been able to study it with Chandra and, and now other instruments as well. The European Space Agency has its own X-ray telescope called XMM-Newton, which has done uh, similarly spectacular studies of these objects. Uh, but with Chandra, we've been able to, to see um, the X-rays produced by the black hole at the center of our galaxy with enough resolution that we can actually place the, the source, the location of the emitting plasma, within a region no bigger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, in addition, this object seems to explode roughly once a day, uh, producing a flare of X-rays. Um, the X-ray intensity during these events goes up by anywhere between 30 and 200 times what the intensity is 
um, during the quiescent state. And so for a couple of hours, the black hole at the center of our galaxy shines much, much brighter than it otherwise does. And what's intriguing now, and these are the latest results that haven't even been published in the literature, what's intriguing now is that there is very clear evidence that during these events, we can see uh, a periodic pulse. It's like the heartbeat of this object. There's a periodic pulse that occurs r roughly once every 20 minutes. Um, the natural interpretation for this, and, and again, it hasn't been published yet, so we have to look at this more carefully and make sure that we've ruled out all the other possibilities, but the natural interpretation is that what we're looking at is a phenomenon um, associated with uh, X-rays being produced in a region orbiting the black hole uh, within a distance only three to four times the size of the event horizon. So although we can't see uh, the event horizon just yet with Chandra or Hubble, um, nonetheless, we're seeing a phenomenon associated with emission that's occurring only two to three times the size of the event horizon. Um, it's similar to what would happen if uh, you imagine putting a searchlight on a planet and being in its uh, focal uh, cone only when the searchlight is pointing towards you. And so you would see a pulse every time the planet goes around the sun, which would then lead to a, a, a periodicity or a period of one year in the case of the Earth, because that's how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. So it's a similar phenomenon with the black hole at the galactic center. We see this pulsation roughly every 20 minutes. Um, and, and so we interpret that as, as being a, a part of the plasma in orbit around the black hole, and the distance that corresponds to that period is, is about three times the size of the event horizon. So th these are some of the most exciting things that are happening now as we speak, and uh, the prospects will get only better as time passes and uh, Chandra and XMM continue to look and, and discover additional uh, activity and, and also with the next generation of telescopes in the pipeline now. Now, everyone asks the question, what happens if you fall into a black hole? No one's ever done that, of course. But could you explain some of the distortions, the distortions of space-time that occur if you were to fall into a black hole and someone were to observe you falling into a black hole from a distant planet? Right. And, and the, the answer to that, of course, depends, not surprisingly, on how massive the black hole is. The, the, what one would see falling through the event horizon um, differs depending on how massive the black hole is compared to the, the mass of the object or the body falling in. Um, it turns out that for a massive object like the one at the galactic center, which we now understand uh, has uh, roughly 3 million solar masses worth of material contained within it, falling through the event horizon of an object like that, um, a person would actually not see very much, <laughs> would, would actually not feel uh, very strong effects on, on his or her body. There would, there would be other distortions to the light, but, but that has, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, the point is that um, what happens physically to matter falling through the event horizon depends on how big the object falling in is compared to how big the event horizon is. And the size of the event horizon scales with the mass of the black hole. So, for example, um, if the sun were to shrink down to the size of a black hole, its event horizon would have a radius of only three kilometers. 
smaller than, than a city. Uh, whereas the black hole at the galactic center um, has uh, an event horizon with a radius about one-twentieth the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is much, much bigger, of course, than, than uh, three kilometers. And it's the, it's the difference or the comparison between the size of the event horizon and the size of the object falling in that determines how much physical damage, if we can put it that way, is done to the object falling in. So because our human, our body is so small compared to uh, the size of the event horizon of the black hole, the galactic center, we could fall right through and not feel uh, very much uh, uh, physical damage. We wouldn't get distorted or pulled or stretched or, or compressed. We would be able to pass through the event horizon and then other catastrophic uh, events would, would ensue, I'm sure, after that. But, but the process of falling in wouldn't do damage to us. On the other hand, if we would have fallen through a smaller black hole, like the sun, again, if the sun would have been compressed to uh, three-kilometer size, then our body would get stretched at first, uh, pulled apart, and, and, and uh, catastrophic damage would follow. We would be disintegrated, and, and only the atoms and molecules would... Uh, would uh, fall through. So the the physical damage is different depending on the size. And a good analogy would be um, compare standing on on the surface of the Earth, where the surface of the Earth, even though it's spherical, looks flat to us because it's so much bigger than us. And uh, and then standing on the dome of a cathedral, the dome is also is is quasi spherical at the top. But because the size of the sphere is much smaller compared to the Earth and much closer to our size, we feel the curvature um, <clears throat> of the dome much, much uh, more. And so that's the analogy. A small black hole, because of its greater curvature relative to us, would do more damage to our body falling through than, than a big black hole does. Now, that's as far as physical damage is concerned. But what we see, though, um, uh, would, uh, uh, would be less dependent on the size and there would be significant distortion to the light path progressively as we get closer and closer to the event horizon. So um, light, because of gravitational redshift, meaning that um, photons uh, have progressively less and less energy, not speed, the speed of light is always the same, but the energy of the photons decreases relative to us at infinity as they get closer and closer uh, to the event horizon. Because of that decreasing energy, we have uh, greater and greater difficulty seeing the light. Eventually, as the, <clears throat> as the light reaches the event horizon, it's lost all of its energy relative to, to what we see, and so uh, we wouldn't be able to even detect the light anymore, even though it would still be coming uh, out uh, until it passes through the event horizon, and beyond that, we wouldn't see it anymore. But as we fall in, because of this effect, we would tend to see primarily light concentrated um, closer and closer to the zenith angle, right above our head. So as we get closer to the event horizon, we see a progressively smaller cone of light from the rest of the universe until that point when we cross the event horizon itself, and only the light coming directly down would be uh, would be visible to us. And so. Uh, we we would see these significant distortions because of the light bending and the gravitational redshift. And when we cross the event horizon, then, of course, nothing can go back out, so we can't communicate with the outside world. But what we would see is only light falling directly inwards towards us. 
Well, that concludes our interview with Professor Fulvia Melia, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Arizona and one of the world's leading experts about black holes. Well, if you want to know more about black holes, especially about the speculation that maybe a black hole is a connection to a white hole at the other end, then get a copy of my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. And the question is, even though these wormholes connecting a black hole to a parallel universe, even though they are in fact legitimate solutions of Einstein's equations, it's not clear how stable they are. Perhaps if you fall into a black hole, heaven forbid, and you shoot out the other end, perhaps the wormhole blows up and you get caught in the middle because of the radiation buildup that is predicted by one version of the quantum theory. So what is required is a complete theory of the quantum impact on black holes. It's not enough to simply talk about black holes. You have to be able to get into the quantum theory. And that's what the God equation is all about. It's about the theory of everything, including what's on the other end of a black hole. Well, that's it for exploration. Go to my website, mkaku.org, mkaku.org, and find out what all the excitement is about. And again, we're using the book as a fundraiser for various public radio stations to raise funds to keep public radio alive and well. Good day.